This is the Modern Stoicism Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Joining me on the podcast today is Massimo Piliucci. Massimo is a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York and an author of such books as How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life, A Handbook for New Stoics, How to Thrive in a World Out of Your Control, How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy, and his next upcoming book, A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. So today we have uh, with us Massimo Piliucci. He'll be talking about his latest Medium article. Let's talk about the premeditation of adversity. Welcome, Massimo. Thank you for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure, Adam. So I wanted to open with a question, which, which comes from the first section of your article, which says um, that premeditatio malorum is, a, is Latin for premeditation of adversity. It is one of the most well-known, potentially misunderstood, and very useful of all Stoic techniques. Now, you highlighted in here that it's potentially misunderstood. So what exactly did you find is generally misunderstood, and what made you want to address this misconception? Well, the, the first thing that people think um, when they hear about the premeditatio malorum is, why would I ever want to imagine a worst-case scenario of anything? That's going to depress me. That's going to you know, cause me anxiety and so on and so forth. It's like, that sounds like a bad idea on the face of it. So why would I want to do that? And of course they are right. If the, if the point were to emotionally engage with, you know, worst case scenarios, that would really be a bad idea. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. But that is not the point of Proveditatio Malorum, just like it's not the point of a lot of other stoic uh, techniques. In fact, if anything, uh, the point is kind of the opposite, is to engage with a potentially problematic situation in a non, as non-emotional way as possible. Uh, let me give you an analogy. So another one of the, of the most uh, famous and um, effective stoic techniques is the, is the philosophical diary, right? Journaling, um, essentially what Marcus Aurelius was doing throughout the meditations. So writing about your problems, reflecting about how you behaved and so on and so forth. But if you notice, Marcos was running in the second person. He was always saying things like, you did this, you should think about that, right? Now, modern psychology uh, has pretty good empirical evidence uh, that suggests that that's a good, that's a smart way to do it. Because if you write your diary in the second or even in the third person, you automatically put some, some distancing between you and yourself, in a sense. So you're, you're writing as if you were writing to a friend. Uh, you are externalizing, you're objectifying things, you're, you're making things into an objective description. If you write in the first person, on the other hand, it's inevitable to be to get more emotionally involved. The same exact thing goes with the premeditatio malorum. The, the point is not to go and, and start getting anxious and, uh, and emotional about whatever the problem might be. The point is to try to think about it at, 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 from a distance, about it from a distance, as if you were looking at it from a camera, if you were you know, doing a movie from, a, from an external point of view, uh, which will help, uh, help you figure out what is the most proper way to respond to whatever situation you're trying to imagine. So, so the, the misconception, the source of the misconception is that people immediately start thinking about, well, if I do that, 
I'm going to, if I visualize, you know, bad things happening to me, then I'm going to get anxious. And that is, in, in a sense, that's exactly the opposite of, of what the point of the meditation is. There's a section of the article that you've written, which also discusses uh, one of the major misconceptions, which is um, the idea of negative visualization, the idea of using premeditatio malorum to imagine how bad it could be and and then use that in some way to you know strengthen your own resolve or to strengthen your mind against what could happen but but you consider that to be an incorrect interpretation can you uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit well for one thing there is no uh, no trace in the stoic literature of any visual registration exercise in the first place um so uh, Treat it as a visualization exercise, actually a modern thing. And this is something that comes out of cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, uh, and those things. Uh, it's true that those approaches were uh, influenced by stoicism for, for, for certain, uh, but you know, they are their own thing. They're not a philosophy of one thing. They are a set of, you know, they're kind of psychotherapy. And so the goal is, is definitely different for, for, one, for one thing, but also, you know, Cognitive behavioral therapy goes has developed also at some point kind of outside of its original roots of stoicism. So whatever techniques uh, CBT practitioners use today, like you know, 40 years after, 50 years after uh, the beginning of their discipline, are not directly related or are not a direct reflection of a sort of the stoic approach. So, um, so just even thinking about the premeditatio malorum as a visualization exercise is actually a modern thing. That does, that's not to say it's, that it's not a good idea. I mean, Don Robertson, for instance, has guided um, versions of this meditation as a visualization exercise. And he's, he says very clearly, you know, this is not the way the Stoics actually did it. Um, and so um, it's, it's okay if you want to do it that way, but it's certainly not the, the original way of doing it. And for some people, it may not be the best way to do it. For instance, I'm, I've tried several times uh, the visualization exercise, and I'm horrible at it. As soon as I close my eyes and start thinking about, you know, imagining a scene, my, my mind drifts away and uh, either fall asleep, you know, not, not off, or, uh, or I lose the track, track of what I was um, focusing on. So for me, it really does not work as a visualization exercise at all. Uh, and so I had to figure out other ways of doing it. And the ancient Stoics actually uh, do uh, have, a, at least in direct references, uh, all of them men mention uh, technique, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and, and Epictetus. And it's clear that in some cases it's a writing exercise, um, as in the case of Marcus, most obviously. And in other cases, maybe a more cognitive as opposed to visualizing, uh, visualization-oriented exercise. When Seneca says, you know, you should tell yourself or you should remind yourself, things like that. Uh, then it's like it's more of a, a verbal uh, thing than a than a visualization exercise. So you've um, you've already highlighted Donald Robertson's writing. Um, you also uh, bring in Bill Irvin in your article, and I'm I'm interested to find out you know where where are the big similarities between those two interpretations because they're very modern versions of uh, of the interpretation of Stoicism. Is there are there similarities that you enjoy between the two of them or from their different points? Is there something that you definitely ascribe to um, in your own interpretation of Stoicism? So, yes, in, in a, of course, both Bill and, and Don are directly inspired by the Stoics and they're, they're talking about Stoicism, but they do have a, very, a fairly different take. Like for instance, um, I actually think that Don's take is uh, best thought of as a 
reimagination of the of the original exercise, as I said, around visualization, along the lines of a visualization exercise rather than a written one or a verbal one. Bill, uh, what he calls a premeditatio malorum, is actually something somewhat uh, somewhat different. Uh, he actually deviates in a number of respects from from from, from the original. Um, for instance, uh, he, he quotes a number of. Uh, original passages from, for instance, from Seneca. And one of those that he quotes is uh, from the letters to Lucilius, from letter 18 to Lucilius, and it goes like this. Set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, is this the condition that I feared? Um, and also in letter 20, uh, also cited by, by Irvine, he says, Seneca says, I, told, I hold it essential, therefore, to do as I have told you in a letter that great men have often done, to reserve a few days in which we may prepare ourselves to real poverty by means of fancy poverty. Well, those exercises, they don't strike me really as a kind of a premeditatio malorum. What they are is that the exercises in self-deprivation, which is a different kind of exercise. It's true that it is that they are aiming at the same thing. They're aiming at preparing ourselves for, you know, uh, times in the future where we might have to uh, sort of with, withstand certain adversity and withstand the situation that is then then it's not ideal. But those are actually complementary exercises. I don't I don't think of these last two things that I um, read you from uh, from Seneca, which Bill Irvine mentions in his book, as actually being premeditatio malorum at all. So um, now there are bits where um, where Bill gets a little closer, for instance, is he quotes a bit in the Enchiridion uh, from Epictetus, where Epictetus says, when somebody's wife or child dies to a man, we all routinely say, well, that's part of life. But if one of our own family is involved, then right away, it's poor me, poor me. We would do better to remember how we react when a similar loss afflicts others. Well, that's, that's an interesting exercise that, you know, mental exercise that Epictetus is proposing here. But again, it doesn't seem, it doesn't strike me as a premeditatio malorum. So I don't think that Bill is actually really talking about a premeditation reversity. Don definitely is. Um, and it's clear also from the, from the quotes that he has um, about uh, when he talks about these, uh, these exercises. So, so they're really, uh, I think that broadly speaking, one can say there is a, there's a family of related stoic techniques that all are about preparing ourselves for, uh, for a situation of adversity, but they do it differently and, and they have different emphasis. Yeah, there's a, a point in your article where you emphasize premeditatio malorum as not simply being about uh, habituating yourself to the bad things that could come about or understanding that the things that are happening to you are irrelevant because of their um, relation to the world and the universe spinning around us, I guess in, it, there's a point at which you mentioned that premeditatio malorum can sort of, it can also be looked at as an exercise in gratitude, um, whereby you right. say, this could be much worse and it is not, and therefore I am grateful for the situation in which I find myself now. Right, exactly. And, and uh, um, or it can also be understood as an exercise on taking perspective of things, because one of the things that Marcus Aurelius does, for instance, 
is he, he constantly reminds himself, you know, things are always changing. Uh, this kind of stuff that is happening to you has happened to other people uh, before, and you know they've endured it. So why shouldn't you endure it? So again, those are all related because those are all ways to cope from a stoic perspective with adversity, right? But uh, but I think it's better to think of them as as sort of a family of related techniques rather than a single thing. If we want to use the word the term for meditatio malorum, then I would actually uh, leave it only for specifically the, um, the stuff that the, the ancient Stoics were referring to with, with that using that sort of terminology or similar terminology. For instance, um, here is, um, uh, let's see, let me find the exact quote. Here is Seneca uh, near the end of On Anger. He says, the spirit ought to be brought up, brought up for examination daily. It was the custom of Sextus when the day was over and he had betaken himself to rest to inquire of his spirit. What bad habits of yours have you cured today? What vice have you checked? In what respect are you better? I make use of this privilege and daily plead my cause before myself. I pass the whole day in review before myself and repeat all that I have said and done. I conceal nothing from myself. I omit nothing. But why should I be afraid of any of my shortcomings when it is in my power to say, I pardon you this time, see that, uh, see that you never do that anymore. Now, that's a, it's not a premeditation of adversity. It is actually a thinking back toward what you've actually done during the day and figuring out which, where you went wrong and, and, and why. It's your self-reflection. And yet these, can, these kind of sources gets quoted, that's referred, gets referred to whenever there are discussions of premeditation malorum. So it, it's really... A, a panoply of, of, of things. And we should keep, um, I think, the term only for the actual premeditation of adversity. And then we should keep in mind that there are at least, uh, there's at least an ancient way of, or a couple of ancient ways of doing it. As I said before, one is as a written exercise, the other one is as, as a verbal exercise. And then there is at least one modern version to do it, and that's the uh, visualization approach that Don Robertson proposes. Um, you notice uh, that in my, you notice that then in my, article, I also pr propose another modern way of doing it, and that is by using concept mapping. Um, those are, that's for people like myself who are actually challenged when it comes to visualization exercises, right? So I don't visualize well, as I said before, but I do work well with things on paper or, or on a screen. And so concept mapping is a standard technique that is used in uh, education and in a number, a number of other fields. And basically it, what it consists of is, is a graphic visualization of a series of possibilities, right? possible scenarios. So you start out with uh, whatever the problem is or the concern is at the top of the page, and then you start drawing these, these diagrams that kind of look like a, uh, um, you know, a, a tree of possibilities, basically. And so, well, if this, if this is where I start, then that's what might happen next. And then if that happens next, that's what might be happening next and so on and forth. And then you build all of these possibilities as, as sort of coming out of the, of the initial starting point. And in doing so, you're doing a premeditatio malorum because you are, in fact, envisioning a number of possible scenarios, several of which are gonna be negative. And then once you have them on paper or on screen, you can uh, go and trace them back, all of them, and say to yourself, okay, well, this, the one on the, you know, the branch on the left is the worst that can possibly happen. The one in the middle is, you know, sort of intermediate, and the one on the right is actually a pretty good scenario. So let me focus on the one on the left, the worst possible scenario. How, how would that make me feel? What, what should I do about it? How can I prepare? What, how should I react to it? 
uh, and so on and so forth, right? So you can do that as a graphic exercise in a sense, instead of a visualization one, if, if your mind just doesn't re react well or, or respond well to visualization exercises like my own. Yeah, so I, I should say I had never tried the concept mapping approach to uh, premeditatio malorum as, as you put it. And so I actually, in preparation for this conversation, I, I took the time to actually put one together. And what I found was, was interesting was the fact that you could trace yourself from an initial thought all the way through the process of, of where you think it might go. So it's an interesting map about the mind of the person who's actually thinking of these, you know, bad things that could happen. Um, right. But something that I thought was important as well, and I'd love to get your take on it, is that, is that you know, when you are faced with this map that show, which, which could really um, spiderweb out and turn into quite a, you could, you know, of course, elaborate it into quite a large diagram. Yes. Um, I do think, uh, personally, I thought it was very important to remember that the points are objective. They, they carry no value at this point. Um, right. they, they simply are statements of what could happen. And you, you know, it, 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 I mean, to me, that definitely resonates with the st general stoic concept around the idea that, that, uh, or I think it's a Socratic quote where, or Epictetus, where he says, the universe has changed, but life is opinion. So, so ultimately these things may or may not happen, but they are objective yeah. in their nature. So what do you think? Yes, actually, that, you should that, be doing that's that? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, that, that quote actually that you just mentioned is actually from Marcus Aurelius. And, um, and he's right. It, that, that, let me talk about that for a second. Then we'll go back to the concept mapping, if you don't mind. Because that quote also gets often misunderstood. Uh, it is some, he says something on the lines of, you know, life is change and, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the universe is change and life is opinion, something on those lines. And he's uh, often, bizarrely, I think, interpreted as a as a moral relativist it's like oh so it's, it's all opinion it's it's you know there's no right or wrong or something and it's like no that's obviously not what he's saying uh, at least if you don't read just that sentence but you understand you know in the context in which he's writing in the meditations and also if you understand anything if you know anything about stoic philosophy they were definitely not relativists at all uh, the relativists of antiquity were the sophists and and the stoics were definitely no no friends of the sophists so um what, is, what Marcus is saying there is actually important, and that does go back to uh, the concept um, of, of premeditatio uh, malorum. Uh, He's reminding himself that there is an objective fact of the matter about the universe, right? That everything is changed, you know, things happen in a certain way, and so on and so forth. And then there is value judgments. There is our opinions. And facts don't come with value judgments attached. So when, you, when we say things like, oh, I lost my job, that's a catastrophe, um, that's our own value judgment attached to, the, to a fact. But the fact is you lost your job, okay? Whether that is a catastrophe or not remains to be seen. Uh, if you just, if you immediately uh, attach the label to the, to the fact, then you're confusing uh, a state of things with a value judgment. And value judgments are inherently human. They're, they're not out in the world. These are human creations. Of course, just because they're human creation, that doesn't mean that they're not valuable, or, and it doesn't mean that they're not in, you know, somehow correct or, 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 or not, depending on what the situation is. But it's a crucial stoic point that we should keep a separation, as sharp a separation as possible between the facts as they are in themselves and the opinions and judgments of human beings. So Marcus has that particular phrase. Of course, Epictetus in the Enchiridion, where he says, 
you know, you're just an impression. Let me take a look at you because you might not be what it would look like. He's doing the same thing. An impression is the, the immediate perception that we have of certain things, events, or people. And then Epictetus figure out that we have this ingrained, uh, you know, necessity apparently, uh, or a certain tendency to attach value judgments to things, events, and people. And what he's trying to do there, he's telling his students, you know, separate those two, keep a distance, uh, remind yourself that, that uh, a particular judgment doesn't follow necessarily from the facts that you have available or, or for the facts as they appear to you um, in, the, in the beginning. And that's a crucial uh, Stoic technique. It's a, it's a crucial aspect of, of uh, Stoic practice, uh, this notion of objectifying things. And that is one, if you remember when, when we started this conversation, and I was saying, you know, one of the most common mis misconceptions about the Meditatio Malorum is that um, people say, oh, well, I'm going to get emotional and anxious about it. Well, you're going to get emo emotional and anxious about it precisely because you're making the mistake of confusing a factual description of things, you know, a third person or second person description of things with, uh, with an emotional judgment. And that's the point. You shouldn't confuse them. You should keep them separate, right? Um, modern therapists say the same things. When, when, uh, when uh, rational motive behavioral therapists will tell you that you need to avoid catastrophizing, um, that's exactly what they mean. Catastrophizing is this uh, attitude that a lot of people have of immediately attaching a negative label to something that is happening, such as I'm losing my job, right? Well, Certainly losing your job has, has a number of practical objective consequences. You know, now you have a problem of trying to figure out how you pay your rent, for instance, or, or get groceries uh, and that sort of stuff, right? But it, it is not necessarily inherently a catastrophe. It depends on, on what the circumstances are. It depends, of course, in part on how you react to it, right? It may very well be that, for instance, you were in fact stuck in, the, in that job and you didn't have the, you didn't dare quitting. And now that you're forced to it, you're actually are going to start thinking about new ways of doing things and you know they might might have new opportunities even if you don't get a job immediately another job immediately you may have ways you know to uh, deal with the setback and and so withstand the impact of the setback so it's not really a catastrophe it's a setback uh, and so on and so forth but if you start immediately thinking if your first part is okay this is a catastrophe uh then uh, right now the right right there you, you start going down the rabbit hole uh, of sort of emotional reaction, you become anxious, and that's that undermines your rational ability to think about the problem and actually address it. So, do you think that there would be a? Do you think that it would be useful useful if uh, the act of doing premeditatio malorum was tied, like it had an extension where it could also be used as a as a teaching tool, to to then create this list of things that could happen and look at the list and say, do I am I anxious about these things simply by seeing them on the page and and use that as a form of I guess mental training to kind of understand that you don't have to judge these things they can simply just be as they live on the page just as po bullet points on a list or as points on a map yeah that's that's actually not at all a bad idea um, that can definitely be helpful and in fact that reminds me of a related exercise that um, my friend and colleague Greg Lopez and I have put right at the beginning of this book that we published uh, recently a handbook for new stoics uh, the very first exercise there has to do not with the premeditatio malorum it has to do uh, with uh, the famous stoic fork or as sometimes it's 
called the dichotomy of control, even though I actually am beginning to dislike the, the term dichotomy of control because that also uh, opens up uh, a number of you know uh, ways of thinking by people that are not actually uh, you know conducive to understanding. But be that as it may, the exercise consists in this: suppose that you have that you're facing a situation um, such as okay, losing your job, right? Just to use the same example, or being stuck in, in let's talk about what's happening to all of us right now, being stuck at home for an indefinite period of time because of a pandemic, that sort of stuff. Well, uh, what we suggest in that exercise is to actually write down two parallel lists next to, you know, next to each other. On the, on the left, write down the things that are under your control, the things that you can actually do, <clears throat> the things that are actually actionable for you, where you have agency. And on the right side, write down things that are part of the same situation, but they're not actionable. You can't do anything about it or not much about it. And so they, where your agency cannot really be exercised. And then once you have those two lists, uh, we say, you know, read them over and over and, and repeat to yourself that you need to focus on the left list because that's where your agency is maximized. And you need to, to develop an attitude of sort of equanimity, basically, toward the, the elements on the right list because there's not much you can do about them. So what you're suggesting with the fermentatio malorum would actually work in a very similar way, right? So write these things down and then separate them. You know, take a look at, at what is it, where, where is it that you can have actionable uh, things and then focus on those and repeat yourself to, about the rest that, well, that's just a fact. And, you know, it may or may not be a convenient fact. It may, not, may or may not be implying a setback but it is a fact and I have to accept it as such. I mean, after all, we are adult human beings. We know that sometimes things in life go our way and other, other times they don't. And um, one of the differences between uh, you know, being a child and being an adult is not only that you have that knowledge, but that you don't throw a tantrum every time that things don't go your way. Um, that you know, we don't consider that to be the, uh, the behavior of, of a mature adult human being. You just say, ah, okay, well, this time it's not going my way, I suppose. So let's, let's focus on something else. So let's try, let's try something else. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, I, I brought something up um, before we started recording, Massimo, about one of my interpretations of premeditatio malorum being, being a useful tool for someone in the field that I work in. I work in the world of risk management and product assurance. And um, one of the things that you do when you create a new product, especially hazardous items like in, the, in very controlled environments, and what you do is, is you, you immediately create a list of things that may, that may happen that are hazardous, risky, et cetera. And you use that list to better identify those things which you can do things about or not do things about, and then you prioritize those things. So to me, it's very interesting that, you know, that, that exercise that, that you um, suggest that you and Greg Lopez put together absolutely, I think, parallels that because ultimately um, you say something that I, I find myself going back to much more um, as I think I grow older and as I, as I progress through my career in, in the world of engineering, whereby, um, you know, we as human beings must understand that these things are going to happen, whether we, whether we like them or not, or they may happen, um, you know, depending on certain probabilities. And we can either ignore those things, or we can do something about them, or we can do something about them within ourselves, sometimes to understand that it's not a bad thing if it happens, or if, or that we can objectify it in some way. So there are so That's many right. different ways around that. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. Like I said, I, 
uh, one of the podcasts that will air before this one is about the stoic manager. So there's, it's always interesting to me when the field that I work in sometimes links back to this idea of uh, stoic practice. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, what you're bringing up to some extent uh, actually opens up a whole other can of worms, if you don't mind, which is the, the connection between stoic practice and stoic philosophy. Right. So I think that it's pretty obvious that stoic practice, meaning stoic techniques, are useful outside of the philosophy, right? That's why, for instance, uh, as we were saying earlier, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, and so on and so forth, have been developed initially, at least, um, using stoic techniques as, as an inspiration. Uh, but those are not philosophies of life. It's not like a CBT practitioner is going to tell you what that you need to act virtuously, let's say, or, or that virtuous is the only good and you know, that sort of stuff. That's, that's it's not his business. His business is to help you out with a specific issue, whether it be anxiety, depression, uh, phobia, or whatever else, right? And yet that, that practitioner can use the technique um, effectively uh, without necessarily saying, oh, by the way, you need to embrace also, uh, you know, stoic philosophy as a, as a whole. And, um, this happens also in other situations for other philosophies of life. For instance, just because you practice yoga, that doesn't mean you, as in the physical exercise, that doesn't mean you subscribe to yoga philosophy. Yoga philosophy is, in fact, a type of philosophy that is very ancient. It predates um, Buddhism, and uh, you know, and it's all it's got its old you know metaphysics, etc., etc., and ethics. And just because you signed up for a yoga class, that doesn't mean you also signed up for the philosophy. The same goes for people who practice, let's say, meditation, uh, even Zen meditation. Well, meditation is useful for all sorts of things. You know, it calms you down and it's, it's uh, been shown to be useful uh, for, uh, to, to manage chronic pain, you know, things like that. But that doesn't make you a Buddhist. What makes you Buddhist is if you actually buy into Buddhist philosophy, particularly the ethics. So if you try to follow, follow the Eightfold Paths, if you uh, agree with the Four Noble Truths and that sort of stuff, right? And so it's very similar in, in Stoicism. Um, practicing Stoic techniques doesn't make you a Stoic. Uh, what makes you a Stoic is to actually accept the philosophy, in fact, whether or not you actually practice, <laughs> right? Uh, the techniques, because one can actually adopt the Stoic philosophy as an output in life and without necessarily actually spending much time uh, practicing. I recommend doing both, obviously. I recommend, you know, adopting the philosophy as a framework for life and also doing the practice because it's very, it's very useful. Um, but the two are not necessarily, uh, you know, tightly connected, as some people might, might, might think. And, and I would say that I definitely agree with that. I've working in the worlds of innovation technology as I have for the past few years, there are many people who, who will spout philosophies about product development or life or um, management and things like that. And then you realize that they, they, they're sort of checking a box on a list of things in their mind to do, which is to say that they know something about something. Right. And ultimately there's a, there's much difference between practice um, practice of a philosophy and practice of the exercises of the philosophy. And I, so I completely agree with that. It's another one of those things where, you know, at some point you have to, you have to jump in with both feet and really say, I, I'm going to, to really uh, subscribe to this notion and not yeah. just, you know, do, do the lectures. Now, I think you and I would both agree that for many people, the exercises are useful. And if that's the only thing that they do and it helps them, please continue to do that. However, on right. the flip side, Sometimes the best way to even continue that is to eventually bring that philosophy in as a whole. Yeah, no, that's right. And the reason I think uh, this uh, 
interesting topic to, to discuss is because it does, the, the confusion between the technique and the philosophy uh, is actually fairly common. It's becoming fairly common, particularly uh, Stoicism, although as I said, it actually is found also in other, in other uh, philosophies like Buddhism or yoga. And um, I'm particularly referring to so-called, what is sometimes referred to as uh, Silicon Valley Stoicism. Uh, you know, so where people say things like, uh, oh, um, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or something that are stoic because they seem to be using some techniques uh, in their business uh, that are somewhat reminiscent of um, stoic exercises. And uh, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say, no, they're not. Um, <laughs> or at least there's no, no uh, particular reason to think that they are uh, just because they find some techniques or some approaches uh, useful in their own business. Because for one thing, uh, the main goal of a stoic life, if you actually are talking about the philosophy and not the techniques, uh, should be to better yourself, to become a better human being, and you know to achieve arete, to achieve uh, excellence as a human being, where that excellence has to do with the moral dimension. And so, if those people are in fact doing that, then then yes, they are trying to practice stoicism, the philosophy. But uh, I think there is pretty good indirect evidence that at least some of the people that I mentioned are not um, into stoic philosophy, although they may very well be uh, practicing something that that is uh, reminiscent of, of uh, stoic techniques yeah it's interesting because what, what you describe there is a situation where someone someone becomes attributed to stoicism from something that they do i've mm -hmm. i've actually had it happen the other way around where i met i met a, someone um and uh, she told me that she performed this practice in her and she kind of came up with it on her own. And she, she was like, I've never heard anybody else talk about it. And her practice was to imagine herself in her house and then to enlarge, you know, to sort of step away from that image and see herself in the apartment, to see herself in the building and then keep going out and re and use that until she reaches the edge of the universe almost and use that to realize that her problems are only so are only so big and they, right. they certainly in the larger scheme of things aren't that important. And it, I, I res really had to resist the urge to say, well, that's, that's the view from above. And right. because uh, from what I gather, she really had no idea that it, there was anything like that. And so so interestingly, I think it, it's interesting. You kind of see it both ways, but ultimately I think, I think in my mind, that's partly because I think when the technique works, it, it can, there's many different ways for it to manifest itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the example you just brought up, it's interesting. Uh, when I was in college uh, in Italy, I had a, a good friend of mine who kept uh, reminding, uh, reminding us of what she called the Alpha Centauri perspective. You know, Alpha Centauri being the, the closest star to the solar system. And basically her point was like, look, right now you're all, you know, worked up about, about whatever problem you you're focused on, but you know, try to step back a little bit. And she didn't even need to go to the end of the universe. She just said, you know, just take a look at it from outside the solar system. That's enough to show you that your current concerns are actually in the big scheme of things. They're actually very limited. That doesn't mean they're not important, by the way, because other people uh, misunderstand this. The, the point of that, uh, the view from above. The view from above is not to imply that your problem is not something you shouldn't deal with. Of course you should. It's your problem, right? And of course it re it's relevant to you because you know you're you're experiencing it. Uh, so you should do something about it. But it is helpful to occasionally remind yourself of sort of a, a broader uh, perspective on things, 
um, because it calms you down. It says, oh, okay, I'm, I'm all excited or I'm all worked out about this particular issue. But in fact, you know, in the large scheme of things, in the, in the, in, across human history or across the world and all that, this is really a fairly minor thing. People, as Michael Cerritos, uh, I mentioned earlier, often says to himself in the meditations, it's like, well, other people have had the same problem and they cope with it, so why shouldn't be, you be able to cope with it, right? So at this, putting things in perspective is not to minimize the problem, uh, it's just to literally put it in perspective because that helps you to calm down and to look at things a little bit more objective and therefore react rationally as opposed to emotionally or anxiously. Uh, to this thing. So I'd like to make sure that we touch on the last sort of major topic that you cover in your article. And uh, I do think that that relates very heavily to the philosophy of Stoicism in its own way. Um, and that is that you have a section of the article which talks about the, um, uh, what I think some people call the apparent conflict between premeditatio malorum and the here and now, and this concept of being present in the here and now. Um, ultimately, you make a point that there is a difference between contemplation and worry, and that yes. one is rational and one is rational. Um, so can, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Worry, worry, the way that you say it, is irrational, and contemplation right. is rational. And so where does the difference start? Like, where does that line kind of become drawn? Right. So, so those are actually two distinct but, but related things that you're bringing up. So let me, let me address first uh, um, the second, with the, 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 the difference between rationally contemplating something and emotionally being involved into something. To some extent, we kind of talked about it uh, earlier at the beginning of this conversation, which is, you know, that is the difference between describing something objectively or in second person or third person. On the one hand, that's the, you know, the, the, the contemplation part as opposed to make it very personal, made in describing first person becoming anxious. That's the emotional part. Uh, as you probably, as you, as you know, uh, Marcus Rodis has, has this wonderfully, um, uh, to my mind, actually kind of funny, although he didn't mean it as a, as a joke, but funny bit in the meditations where he tells himself, he reminds himself that you know, the fish that he's about, you know, the, the wonderful meal that he's about to have is just that fish. And the, that Falernian wine that is so precious is just fermented grape juice. And then the, the purple robe that he, that he wears as an emperor is, is actually soaked in the blood of a crustacean. And then finally he says, you know, and sex is just a rubbing of, of surfaces that explode in, in an explosion of mucus, right? So people look at that and they say, oh my gosh, this guy's really horrible. I mean, it's like, look at the way he thinks about this stuff. But there's good reason to, um, you know, for one thing, unromantically and unappreciative of you know the, the wonderful taste of a meal or the or the uh, or, or the wine and so on and so forth. But there is actually a good reason to think that what Marcus is think is doing there is he's trying to address his own excesses. Uh, we know for for one thing that Marcus Rodriguez had like what thirteen or fifteen children, and after his wife died, he, he took up uh, on a concubine. So clearly, he was interested in sex. Arguably maybe from his perspective, too much, which is why he's trying this distancing exercise, right? He's trying to um, describe to himself 
the the act of, of sex in the most you know in the least romantic way in the most objective way possible to remind himself that all of this stuff that he gets worked up about worked up about is actually you know just a biological function and the same with with food and, and wine and the, and the purple uh, it is very possible that Marcus caught himself several times you know eating too much or drinking too much or perhaps exercising his power as an emperor in a way that was not necessarily the most just and the most equitable. And so this is his way to remind himself that, you know, take a distance from this stuff. Don't take it too personally. Don't take it too emotionally. Uh, remind yourself of what these things actually are so that you can then uh, act more appropriately. So the notion is not that we should always go around with that kind of attitude that we should never appreciate things in life. The notion is that unfortunately we have a tendency to be a little too emotional uh, and a little bit too appreciative of certain things. And so it's a good exercise, a good distancing exercise uh, from time to time to remind ourselves of what the actual, these things actually are. Okay. So that's what, what it's meant by contemplating versus emotional attachment. That if, if you feel that you have too much of an emotional attachment to something, and some people you know, would argue that there's no such thing as too much of an emotional attachment. I think they're mistaken. I mean, there is a proper degree of emotional attachment and then there is too much and there is too little. If, the, if, you, have, if you don't have enough emotional attachment, uh, especially to, in, to people, uh, then you're essentially a psychopath. Uh, if, you are, if you have too much emotional attachment, including to people, uh, then your life is going to be miserable because you're going to have constantly, you know, uh, anxiety and, and uh, you know, you're going to feel horrible about things all the time. So it's, it, the notion is to strike the reasonable middle way uh, between those two extremes, right? And one way to, to do that is precisely to, uh, from time to time, sort of engage in this kind of detaching. Uh, exercises this, this notion that uh, you want to re-describe things to you in a little bit more objective fashion so that you say oh okay well it's actually not as as big of a deal as I thought or I shouldn't be too as much as into this one as, as I thought again this is not unique just to stoicism there is Buddhism as well uh, that has that practice non-attachment right and non-attachment for Buddhists uh, it comes out of, of the notion that um, that they think that the major problem in ex of existence is called samsara. It's the problem of um, suffering. And they um, diagnose the problem of suffering in the world, the existence of so much suffering in the, in the world, as a result of too much ego, a rapacious ego that human beings have. Uh, we want things, we're emotionally attached to things, and we want things all the time, and that causes suffering both in ourselves and in others. And so the famous, uh, story, oh, sorry, the famous Buddhist doctrine of no self is often misinterpreted as, uh, as claiming that there is no such a thing as a self. That's not what they're claiming. The, stark, the, the Buddhists actually believe in a kind of a dynamic notion of the self. Um, but what they're saying is that you should reduce your ego. You should detach as much as possible from you. You should counter your ego. That's because your ego and the ego of everybody else around you is the major source of suffering in the world. The Stoics have arrived independently at a similar notion. That is, Epictetus says over and over, and so does um, Seneca, that the, the major reason we suffer so much and the major reason we're so unhappy is because we focus on the wrong things, because we are too attached to externals. Uh, we want to be rich and famous and healthy and beautiful and successful and so on and so forth. And all, all of those are things that are not under our control, uh, ultimately. Right? We can influence them, but they're not ultimately under our control. The only thing that is under our control 
is our own judgments, considered opinions, and decisions to act and not to act, as Epictetus uh, reminds us. And, and so if we actually focus on those, on the things that are up to us, then we are more likely to live a happy life because we're going to be uh, content with what we actually can manage as opposed to all constantly going after other things that, that are elusive or that we uh, may uh, hold on for, for some time and then eventually lose because fortune is fickle. Sometimes it will, she, she will give us stuff and then sometimes she will take it away with, for no reason and, uh, and, no, and no warning. Interesting that you uh, spoke about a. You spoke about something that you actually quote very often in your at the end of your own podcast. Actually, uh, whereby you say, um, "If Fortuna allows, of course." Right. Right. So, um, I guess my my big question here is that what are my, the, my big takeaway from a lot of these things that you've said actually is really that, um, you know, very much we can take this, we can take these exercises as a learning activity to learn and prepare ourselves for the future and what we wish to do, as opposed to looking at them as an irrational kind of worrying where you, something that doesn't even exist yet. And it, you know, objectively speaking is not, is not actually like factual. Um, you can you actually can take that and throw that away. That's right. And actually, uh, that, that just reminds me of the second point you were making earlier, which I did not, in fact, address. And that is the apparent conflict between the notion of living in the here and now, by ik et nunc, as the Latins uh, said, uh, say, and, um, uh, and this notion of promilitatio malorum. So, so if you want to, if you have to live in, if the idea is to live in the here and now, then why the hell would you want to you know, premeditate about the future? Uh, you know, uh, have a, have a, some kind of imagining of the future. And I think that, I don't think that it's actually a contradiction between those two things. Uh, for, for this reason, um, the here and now includes, in fact, a reasonable assessment of what's going to likely happen next, because we cannot live in the here and now as in, uh, you know, literally just reacting to things in the moment. That's not the way a, a rational being actually lives. Um, that's, that's a, most animals live that way. They react to whatever is happening in the moment. Uh, human beings have the ability to actually think about both, both the past and the future. And we should think, according to the Stoics, about both the past and the future. But for instance, um, when uh, both Epictetus and Seneca tells us to do uh, uh, you know, our, our reflection on how things have gone and, and assess how we did, what they mean is, again, the same distinction between emotional attachment and objective description. When Seneca says, you should think about what you've done today, today, you know, earlier today, it's in the past. So why should I think about that? Well, because, not because you want to indulge into regret or anything like that, because that's a waste of emotional energy. You cannot change the past, so there is nothing you can do about that. But you can learn and should learn. As a rational being, you should learn from the past, right? Similarly, in, when we're talking about the future, the notion is not to meditate, you know, have a, 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 a thinking about the future so that you can worry about it. That's definitely not the case. But you do want to think about what's going to happen next, what's likely to happen next, so you're prepared. Seneca says over and over that a prepared mind is the one that actually reacts best to new situations, right? If you're unprepared, if you don't expect stuff to happen, then you're probably going to actually uh, 
react badly or react in a suboptimal fashion. So I don't think there is a contradiction there between the notion that we should be living our life in the here and now, meaning in that, in that sense, that, that means don't worry about either the past because it's gone or the future because it's not here yet. But living in the year now also means that as a rational being that we want to learn from the past and we also want to foresee uh, the future so that as, as much as it is possible so that we're gonna be prepared for it, right? So, so even there again, there is this distinction between the contemplation of both the past and the future and the worry of, about the past or the future. You don't wanna do the worry, you wanna do the contemplation. So I'll uh, I'll ask one more question on this topic, and then we'll wrap up. But the uh, it's interesting because many times when I speak to people about stoicism, especially persons who are new to it, they will oftentimes make the parallel connection between stoicism and mindfulness. And I believe that mindfulness is important. However, in many cases, I find mindfulness being attributed to not lackadaisical, but certainly a, a lack of regard for things outside of the now. And I think you pointed out earlier on that we as human beings, as not simply the animals of, of the world, the, the normal fauna that you see out in the world today, we have the ability to think of more than the now. So yeah. to me, I see it as a very natural progression of the, of the practice of the, of the philosophy to, to, to step at some point into the shoes of thinking about the future and the past and contemplating those situations. Um, yeah. what, do you, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Or do you think that mindfulness is, is still the more important thing? Um, well, what I would do first is, is kind of talk about mindfulness for a minute because the word, unfortunately, is used in a variety of different meanings. Um, some of which has something to do with stoicism and other that don't really have anything to do with stoicism, that, which doesn't mean that they're not useful. It just means that they're different. Um, in fact, my, my friend Greg Lopez, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, is actually not only a Stoic practitioner, but also a Buddhist practitioner. And he wrote an interesting article for uh, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, for modern Stoicism about the, the mindfulness. And he pointed out, first of all, that actually there are at least two different meanings of the word mindfulness, even within the Buddhist tradition. That what modern Buddhist practitioners, particularly Western Buddhist practitioners, mean by mindfulness, it's actually not at all the same thing as what you find in at least some of the early uh, Buddhist traditions, such as Zen Buddhism. But more importantly, neither one of those Buddhist traditions have actually much to do with Stoicism. In Stoicism, the um, term is prosoke, and it's a term that is used by uh, Epictetus a few times in the discourses, not that many, as it turns out. Uh, it's used also by Marcus Aurelius a few times. Obviously, it's not used by Seneca because Seneca wrote in Latin, but, but, right, but Seneca does use a similar term. But the tr translation of the word prosoki actually is attention. It's often translated as mindfulness, but, but it's the, the best translation is attention. What Epictetus is saying is that we should pay attention to what we're doing in the here and now, right? And these, both he and Seneca actually use this metaphor of a pilot of a ship. And they say, you know, all it takes is a, min a moment of disattention for the pilot. You know, he's not paying attention to what he's doing and the ship is going to go down. You know, it's going to have a shipwreck. And uh, that's their way of reminding ourselves that, uh, reminding us that um, we need to pay attention to what we're doing uh, instead of just going through life by, with, you know, your head in the cloud, essentially, right, in a sense. Now, do you want to call that mindfulness? 
that I'm fine with that, uh, so long as actually one act, one puts the modifier stoic mindfulness to distinguish it from uh, the variety of Buddhist mindfulness, which is which is very different. Um, I would prefer actually to use the in this particular case the original stoic word prosoke, uh, or to just say pay attention. Pay attention is a perfectly valid phrase, uh, and it's very clear in English what it means, uh, right? So in 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 that sense, I think that a stoic really does need to pay attention. Nothing is improved, as Epictetus says, by not paying attention. Right? Nothing that you do uh, is going to get better or better done or better carried out if you're actually distracted and not paying attention, which is an interesting challenge if you think about it for modern times, particularly because we live in a, in a time of attention uh, uh, spans that are very short. I mean, we have in the, in the uh, diagnostic manual, psych psychiatrists tell us that we all suffer, you know, most of us suffer from uh, short attention span disorders and things like that. And um, if, whether you believe that or not, uh, we, we do know that we are bombarded with uh, stuff, social media, television, regular media, all sorts of stuff. And so it's very difficult to concentrate. It's very difficult to pay actually attention to things. Uh, I, I can tell you a personal example. I'm not, I'm not immune from this kind of stuff. So for some time, uh, I, some time ago, I moved all my library essentially to electronic, right? So I have very few books in my apartment, which is very convenient since I live in, in New York. And so I can keep a small apartment with very few books. But of course I have, I actually have a lot of books. They all happen to be in electronic format. Now, for quite a while, I was using you know, my iPad to read books. That turned out to be a really bad idea. And the reason for that is because of course the iPad is at the same time, it's not just a book reader. It's also you know, email, social media, uh, messaging and all sorts of stuff. And so every few minutes, uh, you were kind of distracted by yet another notification of somebody who emailed me, texted me and so on and so forth. So the first thing I did was to turn off most notifications, right? But even so, um, you still have the temptation. You're there, you're on a screen and you know that you're only just a tiny little you know, hand movement away from your email, your Facebook, your Twitter and so on and so forth. That's bad. That's just putting yourself in the, voluntarily in a situation where you can be distracted so easily. It's bad. So I finally decided, no, I'm going to go back to the ebook reader. So I have my little Kobo here next to me. And what that does is it only has books and, and articles. That's it. But that's, there's nothing else. It doesn't do email. It doesn't do texting. It doesn't do anything else. And so when I want to read, when I want to actually pay attention to what I'm doing uh, while, I'm, while I'm reading, I actually essentially trained myself, you know, made a decision to make it easier on, my, on myself to do that sort of stuff. That I think is the kind of things that Epictetus and Seneca are warning us about. That if we don't take those kind of steps uh, and pay, actually pay attention to what, what, what we're doing and why we're doing it, and, and I'll always ask ourselves, you know, Marcus asks himself, never do anything, says, says to himself, never do anything that, is, that doesn't have actually a reason, a good reason for doing it. But that means you need to, to pay attention to not only what you're doing and while you're doing it, but also to why you're doing it. Why, why is it this thing is important as opposed to something else? So in that sense, the, co the concept of stoic attention, uh, or sometimes it's referred to as sto stoic mindfulness, is, I think is crucial to stoic practice and it's crucial to the philosophy. Well, Massimo, I could certainly talk to you for a very long time. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
you know, I want to make sure that I say thank you for uh, coming on the podcast with us today. I think we covered a wide range of topics um, and certainly uh, we'll look forward to having you on again in the future. So thank you again for being with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. I'd like to thank Massimo Piliucci for joining me on the podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about Massimo's work, you can find his books for sale. Head to Massimo's website at MassimoPiliucci.com. Find Massimo on Twitter, at MPiliucci, or on Medium, where you can listen to Massimo's podcast, the Stoic Meditations Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast this week. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to ModernStoicism.com where you can find articles, courses, our Patreon, and other resources. This week on the Stoicism Today blog, Franco Hanley has authored the article, Marcus Aurelius, The Stormlight Archive and Navigating Coronavirus. You've been listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast, the official podcast of modernstoicism.com. Check out all of our episodes at modernstoicismpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like this content, consider rating us or giving us a thumbs up on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Patreon, where patrons get access to exclusive digital content. All music provided by bensound.com.